0: Welcome to the Healthcare Hustle Podcast, a multimedia project intended to highlight the careers of leaders of color across the healthcare industry. Students, early professionals, and the community at large can expect to gain valuable, unapologetic insight on the career journeys of individuals whose lived experience and personal mission has been centered in advancing health equity. Thanks for listening. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to the Healthcare Hustle podcast. Today, we are joined by Dr. Adia Harvey-Wingfield, Professor of Sociology and Vice Dean of Faculty Development and Diversity at Washington University in St. Louis. Adia specializes in research that examines the intersections of race, gender, and class and how they affect social processes at work. Adia is also author of her newest and absolutely fire book entitled Flatlining, Race, Work, and Healthcare in the New Economy. Adia. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
2: We're super excited to have you, Adia. We're going to start off like we always do. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about your your life story? Tell us about your journey.
1: Okay. Um, well, so I've been at WashU since 2015, uh, but I've been a professor since tw- 2004. I grew up in North Carolina in Raleigh. I went to Spelman College. I'm a very proud uh, Spelman alumna. <laughs> Finished there in 1998, went on to Johns Hopkins University for my sociology PhD. And since then, my research has focused primarily on racial and gender inequality in professional occupations. So I've looked at Black workers in a pretty broad range of occupations and fields as doctors, nurses, lawyers, engineers, um, health care healthcare Care workers, as I said, uh, diversity officers to try to get the best understanding that I can of what types of challenges and experiences these workers have in their various fields. And more specifically, how workplaces are structured in ways that often don't allow for black workers to thrive and create obstacles and impediments to them doing their best work and being able to contribute as fully as possible to the organizations where they are employed.
2: That's fantastic. And I know we're really excited to dive into that throughout this entire episode. Did you always want to get into sociology? How did you arrive at that uh, junction in your career?
1: Yeah, so that actually is a function of my high school. I, When I was a junior in high school, I took a sociology class with Mrs. Sandra Ellington, who I'm sure would not remember me many years later. But that class really was pivotal. It really changed my life and changed my thinking. And one introduced me to what sociology is. And it got me thinking about this idea of trying to study uh, behaviors and society at the group and aggregate level, which to me just seemed really fascinating and a really interesting way to try to make sense of a lot of things that I experienced personally in my life, but a lot of things that I also saw happening to friends of mine in North Carolina, to kids at my school, to neighbors and things like that. And this approach to thinking at this broader aggregate level and trying to understand social patterns to me just really hooked me from that point on. So at that point I was pretty clear that that was the uh, that was the career path that I wanted to pursue and that was the area that I wanted to be my primary area of focus and study.
0: Well I, I love the fact that we're you know starting out talking about sociology because one of the things that I have to admit um, I thought about I was like man I know ne- I guess I didn't really understand the power of this field <laughs> as a study um, because I think typically you know sometimes it sits in a more academic, intangible, not really as operationalizing kind of uh, material space. And I was just like reading flatlining, every HR person should know this stuff. Every administrator should know this stuff. Like if we don't have a sociological lens and how we're looking at just our workplace in itself, um, we have no idea what's actually going on. So how, is it is it too much to ask for folks to kind of have this lens in your perspective when we're thinking about you know um, corporations, big companies, you know leaders? How responsible folks should folks be in your eyes to actually kind of having the sociological lens and being able to apply this lens to the issues that they see in their organizations?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, I have to say, I don't know that I expect every person in an organization, even everybody in leadership to come in with that type of approach or viewpoint, right? I mean, this is, it's a viewpoint and perspective that at least in my case was honed for years of school and graduate training and uh, methodological and theoretical training as well. But what I will say is that I do think that there is more of an opening door for there to be more connection and conversation between sociologists like myself who are studying these issues and people who are on the ground in practice uh, actually doing, doing this work, right? And I think it's incumbent on us as sociologists to make sure that we're not just doing research that then we only communicate to each other, right? I mean, that's all, (laughs) that's fine and good, but there's a much bigger world out there and there's a much broader world out there. And it's important for us not just to do our work in a vacuum or in isolation, but to make sure that when we are doing things like flatlining, where I'm trying to understand the healthcare industry and how it's changed and what those implications are for Black workers, the next step to me is to take that work to people who are in healthcare and to say this. Essentially, the gist is that I think that they're are real opportunities right now for sociologists who are doing work that focuses on looking um, at but also at other areas to make sure that we're connecting our work with people who could actually perhaps use it and put it into, into practice. And I think that's a real opportunity right now and probably a bit more realistic than expecting kind of everyone at every stage to understand sociology and how it works and methods and training and things like that. Since there are those of us who do have advanced training in this field, I think it's an important opportunity for us to actually use it in ways that go beyond just doing research.
0: So sweet C suite boards uh, chief sociologist or chief sociology officer one day. I don't know. <laughs> that, that'll that'll happen. That'll be a thing. That'll be um, cool. That would
1: be cool. <laughs> yeah, I do
0: have a, a a follow-up just to segue more so into your research and your research interests. Um, Can you speak, number one, to the history of of Black workers' experience, representation in the healthcare system, specifically in the United States? And then, you know, for flatlining, what was it about healthcare that made you say, like, I really want to study the Black worker experience?
1: Yeah, those were great questions as well. So when we look at the history of Black representation in healthcare, It's an interesting picture that I think reflects a lot of how American history has transpired, right? Healthcare has evolved in certain ways to become, uh, it's evolved in certain ways so that depending on the profession that we're looking at, there's a lot of status and influence and pay. I think it's pretty fair to say that uh, in the healthcare hierarchy, doctors are certainly given a lot of uh, status and there's a lot of attention and focus on the position and right. So, doctors are incredible, amazing, very important. But that's also related to how Black workers underrepresented in medicine, particularly underrepresented as doctors. I actually found out from some previous research that I did that if you look at the early 1900s, and this will be of particular interest to you all, if you look at the early 1900s, the percentage of Black men who were employed as physicians was about 2%. If you look 100 years later at the early 2000s, it's about 2%. It's discouraging and dispiriting when you look at that data that show that over that lengthy time period, and this is a time period where we're including the Civil Rights Act, we're including efforts to try to improve the numbers of Black workers in healthcare and medicine. Those numbers have not really changed. And even today, Black workers constitute only about 5% of those who identify as physicians. So there's a significant uh, underrepresentation in that field. What we've also seen historically is that for black workers who have moved into healthcare, the history of segregation has meant that the opportunities that they had often were less expansive and less broad than those of their white counterparts. They often trained at historically black colleges and universities, which again, provided amazing opportunities in education, uh, but did so under severe under budgeting and significant um, lack of resources relative to predominantly white universities and institutions. Black healthcare workers also often went on to uh, train, particularly during segregation, to treat predominantly black patients. You probably all know the story of Charles Drew who developed uh, the blood transfusion process and then was not allowed to actually benefit from something that he invented uh, in his own own life and his own experience. So the history of black workers in medicine is very much intertwined with the history of racial segregation and discrimination in the United States. And I've given doctors as the example, but this is true for nurses, this is true for technicians, this is true across the the broad spectrum. Um, I think, can you remind me sorry the second part of
0: your question what was it that you know really you know inspired you or caused yes. you to look into the experience particularly right in thank
1: you in healthcare? so where i actually started with this project was that i wanted to think a bit more expansively than I had in some of my previous work uh, about um, work writ large. So my previous projects had been driven by wanting to understand a particular occupation. I had a project on Black men who were nurses, for example, because I wanted to get a sense of how being in both the racial and gender minority in that profession had an impact on those workers. And if they had the same opportunities that some of my colleagues were saying were afforded to men in professions where they were underrepresented. Um, I had another project where I looked at black men working in more male-dominated occupations. So looking at men who were doctors, but also lawyers, engineers, and financial professionals to get a sense of their work in those contexts. But what I wanted to do with flatlining was not just to focus on an occupation singularly, but to think about work itself and how work has changed in really significant ways over the past say 50 years. Right? We we used to have this model in, in the US where for many people, Uh, You go to work for one company and you stay at that company for your career and that company could provide fairly decent retirement benefits and you could count on that uh, salary to be enough to raise a family. Now, there's also the caveat that if we're talking about this model, this was a pretty uh, racialized and gendered model that didn't apply to everybody. But this was this picture that we had of work in the United States around the post-World War II era. We don't work like that anymore, right? Pretty much nobody (laughs) works for one company for their whole career and expects that company to take care of them in retirement. That's an outmoded model. The way that we work today is a lot different. It's more subject to the reach of private enterprise. The public sector is shrinking. Organizations talk a lot more about wanting more diversity, whether or not they actually put that into practice. It's harder to have access to professional jobs because of the uh, shrinking opportunities for credentialing and training. So, what I wanted to think about was what that meant for Black workers. How were they dealing with all of these shifts in the cultural and economic structure? And healthcare, in particular, struck me as a really useful way to think about how that was happening because all of those things are present in health. This push towards more privatization shrinking public resources and what that means for public facilities. This idea that industries in healthcare, particularly again, the uh, physician industry and for nurses, that there's more talk around diversity, even if that hasn't actually manifested in changes to the profession. That it's harder to get into these fields and harder to pursue these careers because there's less support for grants or loans or public funding of education. All those things are happening in healthcare at this time. So to me, it really represented An industry where these questions about how work and culture are changing are really present in that industry in a way that offered interesting an interesting landscape for thinking about and trying to understand what that meant for black workers.
3: Thank you so much, I appreciate that And and just kind of piggybacking off of what you were speaking to um, over the last I I wouldn't say the last couple of decades there's been more of a push towards. Um, the agenda of racial and gender equity and across the board, I think, in, in numerous industries. And I'm just curious, um, and my question is a little twofold. I'm just curious, why do you think that is? Where do you think that came from? Where was the certain push for that? And just kind of, if you can touch on that as, as far as how you see it.
1: Yeah, sure. So in healthcare, if you look back, that push has actually been underway in some form or other since about the 1970s, and that's when you start to see uh, congressional inquiries. Uh, we have obviously a different government back then <laughs> that uh, operated under different premises and just worked very differently. But that's when you see more unity across government. And that's where you start to see this federal push for more diversity in the healthcare industry because you start to see these projections looking forward and this recognition that healthcare is actually really in a very dire space, right? in terms of having enough providers for a growing population particularly an aging population there's some real concern about what the numbers look like, right? And there's also concern in the healthcare industry, I think around this time and certainly later, if you fast forward about to the 2000s or so, that as the U.S. population starts to become more racially diverse, that presents a real problem for an industry that is not matching that diversity among its provider population, right? So as we start to see U.S. demographics shifting, we start to see more people of color. We know that having a provider population that doesn't match that can potentially really have impacts for the ability to provide care if the provider population remains disproportionately white and the patient population is starting to become disproportionately or more proportionally uh, people of color. So I think that's been the push and the impetus behind starting to want to see some of those changes, or at least to talk more openly about wanting to see more of those changes present in healthcare, because there is that recognition that those, um, those groups aren't matching up. And that the shrinking number of people who are moving into the provider role isn't necessarily drawing from the population, the broader population of people. That population is becoming more multiracial, but the provider population isn't, isn't matching that.
3: Well said, thank you so much. Uh, I, I guess the other part of my question would be uh, across the organizational hierarchy in, in, in health organizations, um, where do you see the greatest opportunities to, to improve uh, just representation and, and, and employee mobility?
1: Yeah, those are great questions, also. I mean, I have to say, I think when we look at healthcare, at the occupations in healthcare, from my view, there are opportunities across all categories, right? In flatlining, I focus on doctors, nurses, uh, technicians, and some physician assistants. But these are all areas where there's room for improvement for the experiences that Black workers in particular are having. I mentioned specifically that when we look at the physician population, there's a gross underrepresentation of black workers in that field. I mean to have a population in America where black people are 13% of the population, but 5% of physicians, to me is unconscionable. That's not like that's not okay. That's not acceptable, right? So clearly there's room for thinking more and implementing strategies to try to improve that so that there is proportional representation among the physician population. If we're talking about nurses, nurses actually are closer to parity, though still underrepresented. Uh, black Black workers represent about 10 percent of nurses, although, again, Black men are severely underrepresented in that population as well. They are only, I think, about 1.3 percent last time that I looked at the data. So that's, again, that's (laughs) that's a problem when those numbers are that low relative to their position um, in the broader population. But even with nurses being closer to parity, some of the things that I document in the book are that Black nurses in particular have these really stark experiences with racism from their colleagues, right? That they're just dealing with these incredibly overt uh, challenges with their co-workers who often belittle them, who malign them, who mistreat them, this is not a way to maintain a workforce, right? That's just, again, I feel not acceptable in any modern society for workers to have to deal with these levels of harassment on a regular basis. So there's room in the nursing population as well, I think, for um, industries and organizations to think about how they can change the experiences that their workers were having to make, To make environments where their employees aren't dealing with these types of overt challenges and biases. And the same is true, I think, for technicians. And this is one of the things that I also talk about in the book, that when we look at uh, technicians' experiences, they're similar to nurses in the sense that they also are dealing with these overt challenges, not only from patients and patients' family, but from nurses who are situated uh, above them, relatively speaking, in the organizational hierarchy. So whether we're looking at workers who are very underrepresented like doctors or workers who are closer to parity like nurses and technicians, across the board, what we see is this common theme of people being in this work environment where they are experiencing some level of mistreatment in a way that I think organizations can and should be striving to rectify.
2: Thank you so much. Uh, I want to kind of piggyback off that a little bit. And I know you mentioned the piece that you wrote about the nurses and to, to quote your book, I don't want to give away the whole thing, but this line really stuck out to me that for nurses, inflammatory statements and behaviors are a routine part of work, not isolated incidents. That's, that's insane to me, right? Like I'm sure all of us on this podcast right now have dealt with this in some shape, form or manner, um, but not so much that it is just a routine part of the workday. And I just expect that going in. What kind of impact do you think that has on nurses who are experiencing this over the course of time?
1: Yeah, that's another fantastic question. And I mean, some of the nurses that I talked about uh, discussed that explicitly, right? It, one, it takes an enormous toll on your ability to be a productive worker, right? When you know that going into work is going to mean that people are going to mistreat you, that you're going to see these same people day after day and that they are able to mistreat you with impunity. That makes it, I think, impossible to do your best work if that is a regular routine part of your workday. Ironically, uh, given the subject of what we're talking about, we also know that experiencing or anticipating regular experiences with racism also has adverse health consequences, right? So (laughs) this is the crazy thing. We're putting these nurses who work in healthcare in an environment that's actually adversely impacting their own health, right? That's, again, unconscionable to put people in that environment in that situation, but that is the impact that this has on, that that is the measurable impact that dealing with racism on a regular basis has on workers. And I would say, thirdly, I think that, I saw some of this less with nurses than I did with technicians, but it would be difficult for me to imagine that dealing with these types of encounters and these experiences doesn't have some level of a a push out effect and some implication for turnover. right? We've seen a lot more discussion of late about this uh, experience of this great recession, right? Workers being less likely to uh, to stay in jobs that are unrewarding and unfulfilling and people being more likely just to say that they've had it enough and to quit. I think that nurses are not in a position where some other professional workers are, where they can have the option, say, to work from home or to work remotely, right? That just doesn't work in a field like nursing. But I would guess that there are probably, and again, I haven't measured this, so I can't say this with absolute certainty, but I would guess that there's probably a fair number of nurses that have chosen other options or quit opportunities or quit jobs because of what they were experiencing in the facilities where they were employed. And again, from an organizational standpoint, that's not optimal. That is not what you want. If you're seeing turnover in your organization, if you're seeing turnover because of something preventative, like your employees being harassed and belittled and mistreated, That's something you can and should fix. That's not to your benefit to have workers who are leaving because they are being isolated and harassed by their coworkers. So I think that those are some of the multiple factors that probably impact Black nurses when this is a routine part of their lives. I don't think they're necessarily in a position where they're able to do their best work. I think that it's having adverse health consequences for them. and I think it's probably compromising organizational stability as well if we're finding that uh, nurses are leaving as a result of what they're experiencing.
0: Wow. I think this is, um, it's very, really important. I think we're touching on something super important. And I think that all as, um, you know, healthcare professionals or, you know, people who, you know, work in these large systems, uh, we definitely, um, you know, have our own experiences as Nigel said. And at the same time, I feel like we are burdened or not burdened, excuse me. It's the, it's the, the challenge, um, for us, um, equity work. Right. And we just had Dr. Ebony Boyce Carter on our last episode talking about the black tax and paying it forward. And when you're in these institutions, when you're in these environments, you know, someone has to kind of take on that mantle of responsibility. Interestingly enough, you know, you're a Spelman Knight. I graduated from Morehouse School of Medicine. Brandon was at and was a part of the team of Morehouse School of Medicine. Um, So the HBCU environment means, you know, a lot to us. And at the same time, you know, we're here now, doing this work now. It'll be really easy for me sometimes, or if there was a nurse, for example, who maybe came from an HBCU to say, man, I just want to go back to where I can be with my folks and take care of my folks and, and, and just do that and be healthy there. Can you speak to equity work, number one, as you define it, you know, what that means and just the implications for um, black professionals in these organizations who take on that challenge? And then also, can you speak to a term that I know you're probably tired of explaining right now, but racial outsourcing and and how you know those two terms really intersect to impact the experience of Black professionals?
1: Yeah, sure. Happy to. So those two terms are related, and they came out of this research that I did in Flatlining, where I was observing exactly what you're describing, this phenomenon of so many Black workers basically doing additional work that is not their job in order to make these organizations run in a certain way. So the big argument that I make in the book is that we live in this environment right now where, again, we think about how society has changed and how economics have changed. We live in this environment where there's more and more pressure on organizations to make money and to be profit-based and to make a a bottom line. But at the same time, these organizations also say, you know, diversity is important to us and we value this. And this is the thing that we care about and we want to see happen. What we don't always see is organizations organizations putting the resources and the effort and the support behind actually making that diversity happen. So what I argue in the book is that when organizations say that they have these priorities, but they don't devote the resources to actually achieving diversity, what they often do instead is what I refer to as racial outsourcing, right? Which basically means that they push that work off on the Black professionals who are in their organizational spaces. They leave Black professionals to do this work, what I call the equity work, of making organizations more available, more accessible, more relatable to communities of color. Now, you might think, well, you know, what's the big deal about doing this equity work? This is just a thing that people are equipped to do. One, some people are equipped to do it, some people are not equipped to do it. But even putting that aside, the key point that I think it's important to drill down on is that when we find black professionals doing this equity work of making these organizations, again, more available to and accessible to communities of color, this is not their job, right? This is not what you're hired to do. If you're a doctor in this facility and you're going out of your way to be the one person who mentors every Black person who's interested in coming into healthcare, if you're trying to make sure that you're going out of your way offset your colleagues' dismissiveness or inattentiveness to patients of color, if you're making sure that you're the person who's kind of translating, whether literally or figuratively, what low-income Black patients might be dealing with, that's actual work, right? That's not nothing. That's actual work. That's actual labor. That's time. That's investment. That's effort. You're doing all that on top of the already very heavy work week that doctors are actually hired to do in the first place, Right? And what I find is that organizations, in many cases, either explicitly or implicitly accept that or expect that of Black workers that they hire. But it becomes an additional job, and it becomes an additional job that's not compensated, it's an additional job not acknowledged. It's an additional job that does not get recognized by the organization that still benefits from that additional labor. And so one of the reasons that I really try to emphasize that happening as an organizational process is because I think it represents an additional way that racial experiences or racial bias get manifested in organizational structures today, right? We talk, at least in sociology and maybe in some other fields too, we do have some attention to the more explicit overt overt forms of racial bias that happen for Black workers, right? There are the experiences that I talked about of the nurses where, you know, they'll go to work and their colleagues are explicitly racist and that's harmful and it's a problem and it's damaging but we also need to make sure that as much as we're talking about that we're also talking about the less visible forms of racial difference that happen for black workers and organizational structures like this when they are doing the equity work because what that creates is an organizational environment that is not equitable and is not treating all workers in a way where they can all have access to and opportunities to do their best work right and i think that's a big problem that organizations Often don't grapple with and don't always recognize, but it's something that is imperative for changing. If we're going to be talking about how to move into a space where organizations can be more diverse and more attuned to diversity.
3: Wow, that was that was that that was powerful. Um, and, and and I think in that same note, in that same light, I'm just kind of curious: what are some of those things that you think organizations can do um, to better represent their, their employees in terms of parity, equity? Um, and just overall engagement in in, in the workplace.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, some of it has to start just with (laughs) basically understanding what your employees are experiencing, right? And I think that's a big disconnect for many organizations. Some of that also involves making sure that uh, leadership understands that black workers are not a monolith. And that was one of the things that I also really wanted to underscore with flatlining, that what I found for black technicians in some ways was often very dissimilar from what I found for black doctors. But if organizations just have one size fits all approaches in place, they're going to miss one group or the other. And it's probably going to be the technicians because they're in a position where they don't necessarily have the same visibility and profile as the doctors. So I think the first step is for organizations to kind of do internal audits, understand what your workers are experiencing, understand what those challenges look like. And then, kind of interestingly, I think the second step is actually provided by workers who are in the organization. Because as I mentioned, I find a lot of Black workers join this equity work of trying to change these organizations to make them spaces that are more palatable to communities of color. The problem is that when we look at Black workers who are in the organization, they're underrepresented, right? They're not going to be the majority of the group. There are a few people who are individuals who are trying to solve an organizational problem. And as a social scientist and as a sociologist, I know that individuals don't solve organizational problems, right? Organizations solve organizational problems much more effectively. So part of what I think is useful is for leadership to look at what Black workers are actually doing and then to scale up those solutions and actually adopt them themselves, right? One of the examples that I like to give actually is from um, a respondent that I talked to in the book who, and I alluded to this earlier, she told me that pretty much because of her own experiences in medicine and healthcare being isolated and being excluded from the types of networks and relationships that are necessary to advance in the field, now she's available to pretty much any black person who contacts her who wants mentoring or advice, right? And so for me as a researcher, you know, in an awkward way, that was kind of helpful because it meant that she was willing to help me when I wanted to spend time with her and shadow her. But then as I did that, I started thinking, what is the toll that this takes to be available to every single person? That's got to be so, not necessarily exhausting, but that's a lot, right? That's a lot of time. That's a lot of commitment. That's a lot of emotional energy. Again, on top of the very full-time demanding job of being a doctor, and that made me this was her job to be the point person for everybody. But what if her organization, where she worked, actually had a program an outreach where they sought out people in communities of color who might be interested in moving into healthcare? What if they matched them with multiple people in the organization? What if they sponsored retreats or dinners or lunches or things like that, so that there was a pipeline between the organization and the community, so that it wasn't this one person's responsibility, right? And those are things that I think that organizations can think about doing. Look at what the experiences are of the workers in your organizational space. Be attuned to how those experiences differ depending on position in the organizational structure. But then look at what Black workers are doing and think about how you can adopt that so that they don't have to and that you can put your resources and your investment and your multi-billion dollar budget, if you're a major organization, behind this work instead of just making it the responsibility of a random doctor here or there or a the technician here or there. Again, aren't hired to do this work and are already doing the jobs that you ostensibly have hired them to do.
2: That's fantastic. And I, I really love those ideas that you shared for what organizations can do. I was wondering though, in your research and your time spending out in these organizations, did you see anywhere that had That was doing any of this successfully? Was there anyone you talked to where they mentioned maybe a positive or something that was going on that was a good thing in relation to these things that we're talking about? I think it's really important to identify the issues and make people aware of it. But as administrators and aspiring administrators, coming with solutions or being able to replicate programs is also a huge key to starting to address some of these equity problems in the workplace.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And people usually ask me that if I can point to success stories or organizations that I with examples of that are doing this right. I will say that based on what I spoke, based on my conversations with respondents, I did not talk to too many people who felt they could point to their organization as a model of getting this work right. But I will say that I think it's important for organizations to recognize that these issues are real and a central part of what it means to have a diverse workforce and to take steps according to that. Right. All too often, I think organizations take a different approach, which is to say we want more diversity and kind of just leave it at that and expect that maybe they'll get some uh, workers of color who will come into the space. Uh, but the space itself doesn't really need to change. And one of the things that I want to underscore with this work is that if you're going to say that you want a racially diverse workforce, that doesn't mean just bringing people into an existing organizational structure. It means rethinking that organizational structure so that it can accommodate the diversity that you say that you want. Right. And so if for black nurses, we know that a routine part of their work experience is harassment from colleagues, you got to rethink your organizational structure so that that's not a reality for the black nurses that you bring in. I wish I could say that I spoke with some nurses who said, you know, my organization realizes this and here are the things that they've done to try to make that change. I can't say that. That doesn't mean that there aren't organizations out there that are doing that. You know, I didn't obviously speak to everyone at every facility in the country and there may be places that are doing that really well and effectively. I did not hear that from my respondents, but I think that also, again, presents an opportunity for organizations to start thinking through how they can do this work better.
0: You know, it's for me, I kind of want to take a step back in, in history for a second, because I think one of the things that I find really interesting about this conversation and just about the topic of work and like you know that literally being a thing you know when I look back in the 40s and the 50s during different periods of time you know labor was a much more contested thing it seemed like in the American consciousness like there was a deep understanding that if you have opportunity to employment you have opportunity to a better life and um and of course that's why all these you know issues come to be and I think now when I talk with executives or when I'm in certain spaces, it's almost as if that understanding has somehow escaped our consciousness as a country. And so how do we better draw the connection between class and employment? Because, you know, I stepped into the hospital for the first time and it was clear that Black people were overrepresented in our housekeeping and environmental services and food and nutrition, you know, positions and highly underrepresented at the physician level. And it was almost like, how does no one not see this and not see that even if we remove race, the zip codes of some of the most vulnerable populations in our region are overrepresented in some of the lowest paying jobs that we have. So how do we better draw that connection for folks in the industry?
1: Oh, boy. (laughs) So that's a great, yeah, that is a great question, too. And I I think it's a question for the healthcare industry, but I think it's a bigger question about policy and how work is changing as well, right? I mean, my overall field in sociology is to study sociology of work. And so one of the things that I spend an inordinate amount of time obsessing over is what work looks like and how work has changed and how work often isn't um, kind of a not only decent and fulfilling, but work often isn't this vehicle to occupational, excuse me, to economic stability in the ways that it can and should be, right? And there are a lot of reasons for why that has changed over time. Some of it has to do with globalization. Some of it has to do with techn- technological advances. Uh, some of it has to do with, again, the shift towards an approach where organizations are much more focused on privatization and profit and how that's come to encroach into even spaces like healthcare where you wouldn't necessarily think it best fits, but still is kind of is taking root. But ultimately, what it leads to is, I think, something linked to, again, some of the broader changes that we're seeing in terms of this great recession happening, which to me reflects this broader dissatisfaction of many people finding that the work that they are doing is not creating the stability that they need, right? And there are a lot of larger systemic reasons why that's happening, but the ultimate result is that I think many people are realizing that they are working harder, seeing fewer gains from their labor and that work is not getting them ahead in the way that it's supposed to, so to speak, right? Or the way that it's the way that it's promised to. We also know that if we're talking about the racial aspects of work for black workers, that experience and that disparity is that much more pronounced, right? As you mentioned, black workers are overrepresented in jobs that tend to be lower paying, less prestigious, Uh, lower status, and offer fewer opportunities for advancement and mobility. Even in jobs that tend to be more higher paying and more what we might think of as good jobs, wage gaps still persist, right? And that those wage gaps aren't eliminated by educational access, so that even among more educated black workers, we're still likely to see more wage gaps or even greater wage gaps in some cases persisting relative to their white colleagues. Ultimately, what we have a picture of is a society I think where Work does not do what it has been. Work does not do what it should, and instead, it continues to further some of the racial disparities that we've always seen in the United States. And it's going to, I think, until we start reconceptualizing and overhauling how we work and what work does, we're going to continue to see this dissatisfaction and these disparities. Great point.
3: I think that's a great point, actually. And and I, you know. Earlier, you kind of touched on the, the burden for the organizations or, the, or these companies or these health uh, systems to, to kind of take responsibility and, and create an environment that's inclusive, that's diverse. Um, and I, and I wanna say that because my, my question, I, I hope it's not loaded, come across as loaded, but my question is as um, healthcare uh, professionals, as people who are in these systems or people who are trying to enter these systems, is there any way for, for us or for them to assess the environment that they're, getting, they're, they're they're setting themselves into or is or for those who are already subject to those systems, are there resources available or are there best practices that they can they can do to kind of um, make a change or at least kind of get the ball rolling in a different direction?
1: Yeah, those are great questions, too. Um, I think in terms of assessing the environment before you get into it, um, I don't know if there are kind of consistent, tried and true ways to do that. I think most people often do that by uh, relying on either existing connections or networks that they have. If they know somebody in the organization trying to get um, kind of picture from someone that they know about what the organization actually looks like on the inside. Some websites, Glassdoor, for example, is an example. They purport to um, give people some insights into what organizations are like from people who are in those organizations. Uh, So there are ways, but I think they're largely imperfect, right? In many cases, you're not going to have a comprehensive sense or a more complete sense of an organization until you're in that organization. But there are some ways to try to get some preliminary uh, information, I guess, before you, you move into it. Um, in terms of best practices and things that people can do once they are in organizational spaces, I have to say, I think that's more of a question for and responsibility for people in leadership, right? And the reason I say that is because if you're in a leadership role in an organization, I think that it's, again, incumbent on you to make sure that you're working to restructure your organization in a way that's best, and mo- best suited for and most um, attuned to the needs of your workers of color. I think, and I completely understand the temptation of people who are going to an organization to say, or who are in an organization to say, you know, how can I fix this space and how can I make it better? And what should I do? But I think, again, that's the slippery slope back to racial outsourcing, right? Because once you start thinking along those lines, or once you start operating, no pun intended, (laughs) given the the audience here, but once you start operating along those lines, it's a slippery slope from this organization needs to be better for its uh, doctors of colors. So I'll start this support group where we can all come together and understand you know, what our experiences look like. I'm not belittling or downplaying the importance of that type of support, but I'm just saying that again, this is the beginning of how equity work, start, work starts happening. First, it's the support group. Then the support group uh, is kind of lobbying for changes to happen. Then the support group is lobbying for more opportunities internally. Those things need to happen, but those things need to happen from the top. It should not be your job as a doctor who's already working a 60, 70, 80 hour week to then add this onto your responsibilities, right? It is the job, in my view, of the administrator who is supposed to be in charge of this facility to make sure that they're saying, how can I make sure that this space is one where the doctors that we have aren't being mistreated, aren't overworking, aren't being subjected to uh, the types of challenges that are present for, for black workers. So I, I don't wanna say that to suggest that there aren't things that uh, black healthcare workers uh, can do to make their spaces better. I just wanna caution you know, that again, I think once that conversation starts happening, it can easily turn into more that becomes again, unvalued by and unacknowledged by and uncompensated by the organization where people work.
2: Yeah, I think you brought up some some great points there and the value and importance of partnering with leadership and for leaders to be bought into these changes. But at the same time, as you kind of mentioned with the support groups and earlier, listening to what people actually want and need and not creating a one-size-fits-all approach to correct these issues With that in mind, I read your article about race-blind economic policy, and I would be a little interested in how administrators in these healthcare systems can kind of avoid that same type of thing happening um, as they try to address these equity issues. What are your thoughts around that?
1: Yeah, I mean, so this goes back to some of what I was saying before about how it's incumbent on people in leadership to have a different and new mindset about how they see organizations, right? (laughs) Excuse me. It's very easy for people in leadership to um, put into place various policies that uh, you know can seem genuine and can seem good and can seem beneficial and helpful or what have you. But if your policy isn't also thinking again, I I want to see more diversity. If I bring in more diversity, then that means that Black doctors are likely to be more aware of structural challenges that are happening in the workplace and to try to change those structural challenges. How can I, as a leader, make sure that I'm doing my part to address those structural challenges so that they don't have to. That necessitates a different way of thinking about your organizational structure, right? Because you're not thinking about it from what I think is an often race-blind, color-blind model of, here's just the benign neutral organization where doctors do this, nurses do this, technicians do this, uh, everybody's doing their particular part. It means thinking, if I have Black doctors in my organization, There are going to be cases where they are mistreated by patients. There are going to be cases where patients say that they don't want to be treated by black doctors. How do I have a policy in place that acknowledges that reality and deals with that so that black doctors on the fly aren't having to come up with their their own solutions, right? And to me, that's the difference between a race blind and a race conscious policy. A race blind policy just says, uh, you know, provide patients with the best care possible and make sure that patients feel Uh, cared for and supported and make sure that a certain number of patients get through here at a certain, you know, at a certain clip and make sure that patients are satisfied with the treatment that they have. A race conscious policy says, listen, if we're going to have black doctors in here working with populations that are broad and diffuse and so forth. That race blind policy doesn't work because it doesn't protect black doctors who will find, will not may, will find themselves in situations where inevitably a patient says, I don't trust you. I don't want you to treat me. I don't want a black doctor. Find me somebody who's a white doctor who can make sure that I get better treatment, right? A race conscious policy acknowledges that's going to happen and then take steps to think about what that means for how the organization can acknowledge that reality and respond to it. And I think that, again, given how many organizations and industries and fields now say that diversity is important to them, Saying that means <laughs> dealing with that race-conscious reality, right? If this is the organization that you want to have, if you want to have a diverse space, if you want to have a space where you're attracting doctors, nurses, technicians, uh, physician assistants of color, think about what that actually means and then act accordingly. And that is going to mean confronting some hard truths about what racism looks like in the U.S. today, but that also means that doing so allows you to be in better positioned to acknowledge and anticipate what Black workers are going to be dealing with in your space.
0: Wow. Um that was policy acknowledging reality. So simple yet yeah, so powerful. Um <laughs> it's just that is a that is one that I'm definitely going to um take away. Um so I do want to you know call attention that we are um close to time and I think that you know we spoke about a lot of good things. I think that this is this episode is a is a package for all of the entering um, individuals and, and up and coming individuals, but also the seasoned executives. I I, I want to send this to my boss and a few other a uh, few other folks because I think that this just needs to be listened to. And Brandon, I think you asked a really you know good question that made me start thinking. Well, what is just best practice for us to? Pre- protect ourselves, number one, um, but then make sure that we are maximizing and getting you know the most opportunities um, out of our positions in these these environments as we can. And so I think, while there's no established like actual academic best practice the first thing I would say is probably check out flatlining purchase it (laughs) um and make sure you study it and and that you you're equipped with this knowledge and then of course uh listen to the healthcare hustle podcast but um in in the in the um ending of the show I want to transition to my man Nigel to see if we have any rapid um fire questions
2: we do, in fact. Uh, so these, you're going to get three rapid fire questions. Uh, they're going to be a little off kilter. It's going to be a little lighter than it has been for the rest of the show. You ready to go?
1: I think so. <laughs>
2: All right. First one, what's your favorite Stephen King book? I see you've got quite <laughs> a bit behind you there.
1: I do. I've got my, my collection. I will say The Shining is the only book that's ever scared me. That is that is my number one. The Hedges, the Wasps and, of course, the Dead Lady in the Bathtub completely freaked me out the first time that I read it. And honestly, still does. Even when I when I read it, that's that's my number one.
2: Respect. Respect. North Carolina or sorry, Carolina style or St. Louis style barbecue?
1: Oh, I'm going to I'm going to betray my roots here. I'm going to say St. Louis style. Oh, uh, I know that's, that's controversial. I probably can't go home. again. <laughs> probably
2: not. Sorry to ruin your holidays for you. <laughs> Last one for you. If you weren't a sociologist, what would you do for a living?
1: Oh boy. Ah, uh, well, practically speaking, what else am I qualified to do? <laughs> not much else. Um, but yeah, if I actually The career path that I was thinking about before sociology and higher education, I actually wanted to go into counseling. I wanted to be a therapist. So if I hadn't found uh, Mrs. Ellington back in high school, then that probably would have been the career path that I would have picked.
2: Changing lives in an entirely different way, but just as valuable.
1: (laughs) Well,
2: <laughs> so thank you so much for spending some time with us. Uh, where can people find you? Where can people buy your book? Um, and what's the best way for people to reach out if they're interested in learning about you and your research?
1: Yeah, great question. So the book is available uh, through all uh, booksellers. You can get it for the press, which is University of California, but it's also available through major retailers or independent booksellers will order it for you. So uh, if you have a local independent bookstore to support, they will definitely order the book for you, which is always great. Um, I'm available on Twitter and Facebook, so you can find me at A.H. Wingfield uh, on Twitter, um, or sorry, that's not correct, DH Wingfield on Twitter, and I'm now showing that I'm not there, <laughs> not on Twitter very much, but uh, I'm like DH Wingfield on Twitter, Dia Wingfield at Facebook, Um, And so I think those are probably the ways to to find me if people are interested in learning more about this. And I do try to post some of the things that I write for mainstream outlets on both of my social media pages. I write sometimes for Harvard Business Review, for Slate occasionally. Um, I've written for The Atlantic before as well. So I try to put stuff like that on my social media pages in case people are interested in learning more about these issues without having to dig through kind of jargony, peer-reviewed journal articles and things like that.
0: Adia, so thank you so much for having us. Excuse me. Thank you. Long way to say that. I apologize. Nigel, you messed me up because you came off mute, so I thought you were going to close it off. Go ahead and close Uh, it off.
2: This is my bad. My bad. It's all good. (laughs) Adia, thank you so much for joining us today. We really enjoyed this conversation. I think this is going to be fantastic for aspiring executives, coming up researchers, and current executives, as Winston hinted at. So thank you so much for spending some time with us. We loved the conversation.
1: Thank you. This was so fun. I really appreciate you inviting me.
0: Well, that's it for the episode, and we want to thank you for listening to the Healthcare Hustle Podcast. Make sure to check us out each month on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And stay up to date with the Healthcare Hustle fam by following our page on LinkedIn. The marathon continues, so keep on hustling.